We are at the end of this little mini-series in the Trinity. Um, a few weeks ago, when we started this, my intent was to try to get us familiar with this doctrine. Um, we, call, we claim that the Trinity is essential to our faith, but yet it is oftentimes something that we don't know or are or, or not familiar with. So the first thing that we did a few weeks ago was just, it was a lot of information with the intent of get, letting you guys know what the scripture has to say about this and that it's not something that a, a bunch of Christian dead guys made up, but this is actually in the Bible, and I tried to support it from Genesis all the way to Revelation, just trying to piece together some of the texts the text that are in Scripture that promotes uh, this doctrine, which is really just a character, or just who our God is. So really, the study of the, of the Trinity is, a, is a, just another aspect of studying our God, which is what we do when we study the Bible. We study the Bible to know our God and to love our God and to, and to proclaim our God uh, to the ends of the earth. Last week, I tried to use and explain through the book of Ephesians how the, the Trinity has practical implications in our life. That if you look at the triune God and if you study each and every single one of them and the, and the Trinity as a whole, you see that there, there are some attributes that we can emulate in the, lives of, in the life of, of a Christian. That we love one another the way that the Trinity loves one another. That we, um, that we submit just like how Christ submits to the Father and the Holy Spirit submits to both the Father and Son in service. And all of these different things I brought out with the intent to show you that the Trinity does have practical applications in our life. Uh, and this one today, it's, it's, it's gone along the same lines of a little bit of both of the first and second, where it's, it's trying to proclaim and defend the Trinity against outsiders. Whereas last week was about how you're supposed to live inside the church and, and how the Trinity impacts you in, with other believers. Today, we're going to talk about the Trinity in the context of outside, of, of people that are not in the faith, or more specifically, those that are into other religious groups. Uh, if you know the doctrine of the Trinity, uh, then you, uh, there, won't, there shouldn't be any fear when we're encountered by groups that try to say, well, the Trinity is not in the Bible, because you know, the first session, again, you can point to Scripture. You, there should be, at least in your mind, uh, some verses that can help you defend the faith from God's Word. And if you know God's Word, there's no fear in terms of defending the truth. Um, I'm going to be jumping all over the place uh, in terms of Scripture, but at the same time, this is going to be probably the, the least biblical in that sense that I'm, not, I'm going to use the Bible least amongst the three because I'm going to talk about groups like Islam, Mormonism, and Jehovah Witnesses. And I want to explain to you how they think about the Trinity so that you can maybe, uh, in your mind, come up with some ideas on how you can engage them. Uh, some of the arguments are, you might be familiar with because you've encountered uh, one of these groups. But all these three groups, they, have, they do share something in common outside the fact that they all deny the Trinity. Uh, but it is our hope, and as Christians, that we defend the faith. Uh, I've read, I made this reference earlier in the series, but in Jude chapter 1, verse 3, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I felt the, ne the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all handed down to the saints. And the Trinity is one of those things that we need to defend and contend for, because the Trinity is a reflection 
of the God that we worship. And if we choose not to defend this and we're willing to let go and compromise, then it will oftentimes lead to apostasy and misrepresentation of the God of the Bible. So you can't love the Trinity unless you know the Trinity, and you cannot defend the Trinity unless you love the Trinity. So it kind of all works together. You love God, so you know him, and then you know him, so you defend him. I'm going to do this message or lecture, uh, however you want to phrase it, in different categories. I'm going to go over each and every single one of these groups. And, and I figured I'll choose three, three of them because they're, they're, probably, they're relatively common in our area. And also three, you know, Trinity three, and we're just going to go through each of them. But understand that the principles in terms of discussing the Trinity with any of these groups can apply to other groups as well. Uh, this goes to things like you know, Judaism or, um, or other groups that, uh, that, that I haven't mentioned. Uh, and the reason why that is is because truth is truth, and in truth will always reign. And when you use and defend truth, in the end, it will always come out on top. It's just a matter of fact. It's just a matter of whether or not you know them or not. Now, I, am, I do want to explain to you all three different worldviews or religious views or cults, whatever you want to call them, mainly to get you just a little assurance that you don't need to worry about them. Even if they could throw out some uh, um, arguments about that, I'm going to try to explain from their view, as rep- and I want to represent them as faithfully as I can so that you don't have to worry, even if you may not have all the right answers, but that if you just kind of study up on them, you'll probably reach the same conclusions as well. Um, again, I know that all these three groups, there's you know, books upon books based on each of the group, and, and I tried to serve, survey as much as I can from all the readings this past week. Yeah, this past week actually reminded me when I was like in college trying to figure out all these different cults. Uh, so I had a lot of flashbacks. It was kind of really building upon what I already know. But uh, again, this is just to give you assurance that you don't have to worry so much about their arguments because in the end, the Bible has an answer to all of those things. Uh, but let's start with Islam. This is, I will call it, the group that denies all things, that denies all Christianity, or most of it. Islam is the first point if you wanted to outline. The first group is Islam. This is the group that denies all the Trinity. Now, usually, uh, if you, the thing about the Quran is that if you read the Quran, uh, or the Quran, however you want to pronounce it, you'll notice that they, they, they make subtle references to the Trinity, but they don't really speak of it exactly. Uh, they'll say things like there's a, a group of people that worship three gods, and if you go over the Quran, you'll see that They'll say there's three, and then they'll always end with this phrase, like, but there's only one Allah. There's only one God. And um, Islam is, uh, is, comes out you know, 500 years after uh, the New Testament is completed. And Islam attempts to argue against Christianity um, because they believe that they are trying to uh, correct um, the Bible. Um, they want to see part of the Quran as a way to go against Christianity because um, they think that the Bible and Christianity has become corrupted and, and then Muhammad gets like, a vision from an angel that, give, that, that tells him this is the way that you need to learn or teach other people to correct the scriptures. Now, there is a question if you think about this, what does the Muslim people know about Christianity? Um, if you look at, if you compare the Bible uh, and the Quran, you'll find that there's, yeah, there's similar characters, there's even similar events, but in terms of just like verse by verse, uh, there's really only one verse that's similar in both, and that is an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. 
uh, in the Old Testament, New Testament, makes reference to it, and the Quran has it. But uh, in, in terms of the total objective of each of the books and the center point of everything, it's really different. So Christianity and Islam are not identical, uh, contrary to what the world tries to think that all, all religions are the same. Christianity's main focus and the Quran's main focus are radically different because one of the reasons, uh, one of the, the purposes of the Quran is try to correct Christianity. It, it's, it seeks to go against the scriptures. Uh, and therefore, um, you need to understand that that's their objective. Their book, part of it at least, is trying to attack Christianity or correct it in their mind. Uh, the Quran uh, was not written in the same way that the Bible is written. In fact, one of the things that is, can be controversial, or at least right now in the Muslim world, that they're trying to figure out, because for a while they have never have done this, but uh, you know, they're, uh, they're trying to figure out where did the Quran come from, because they believe that the Quran is, is an eternal word. Uh, it's it's, it's an eternal word, meaning that uh, there's somewhere in the heavens that there is this Quran and that it was basically given uh, to Muhammad exactly the way it is. Now, as Christians, we don't believe that about even the scriptures. We don't believe that the Bible is eternal. And what that, that, that sounds blasphemous, I know. But what that means is that when we get how we got this, the scriptures is not the way that the Quran talks about. When we talk about etern, the, the scriptures being eternal, we, we understand the promises will not be broken and everything will be fulfilled. But the Bible is not like there was no scroll of the Old and New Testament up in the heavens that, that, that came down and is given to the prophets or the apostles. Rather, it is inspired. You know, the Holy Spirit uh, enters and gives the, the words for the writers to write. So there's, uh, there's a sense in which there's a mix between the, the, the author and the, their own personality and also God giving them the right words to say. So it's not like the way the Quran does it. The Quran claims that there is an actual eternal word, much like Mormonism as well, that, that God has an exact book somewhere in heaven that's called the Quran, or maybe we look later at the Book of Mormons. It's problematic in the, in, the, in the Muslim world right now because they're finding all of these different scrolls that don't match up. Kind of like what we as Christians have been doing for a while, but the, well, really the liberals are trying to do it. Like they try to find all these different scrolls and why are there all these different variations and then we have an answer for all of those things. You can look those things up. But for the Quran, they claim from the beginning that there is no corruption in any of their words. And any, and any, there's, no, there's no such thing as a, uh, every Quran should be completely identical. In the last several years, they found that that might not be the case. And that's because in their mindset, the Quran was exactly the same as all the way back to when Muhammad he didn't actually write the Quran, by the way, because he's illiterate, so he can't read or write. So the things that he's heard from the angel, he actually had to tell someone, and he had to have a scribe to write everything out. And, uh, and you think, because of that, because Mus the, the, in the Quran, or the, in Muhammad's mind, because he's illiterate, that means that if God or if Allah told him, this is what you need to do to defend or go against Christianity, that he, at least, Allah, would be able to faith, faithfully and accurately represent Christianity. Do you understand what that means? Like, if, if, if God, if Allah is the one who's saying, okay, here's what you need to go against a Christian, here are all the arguments that you need to go to correct Christianity, then he should be able to faithfully represent the Trinity. However, that's not the case. In fact, the, uh, there's been historical accounts of how did Muhammad even know about Christianity, and it's, be, and it's by him just actually dialoguing with other Christians. He himself actually never uh, possessed the scriptures himself. He, he just kind of had dialogue here and there, and there he, again, he's illiterate, so there's nothing that he actually read. There's no um, documents. He, he, I mean, the whole can of scripture was available, but he didn't read it. But 
if you read the Quran, you find that it's actually falsely represented. In fact, some things that Muhammad talks about, about Christianity, it's from things like the Apocrypha, or things that are from the Gnostic cult groups. Um, and I think this is where we find scripture as like just a base of how accurate scripture is in terms of history versus the Quran. Because when Paul, in the New Testament, whenever he writes against, let's say, uh, the Judaizers, he speaks specifically about why they are wrong, right? The book of Hebrews speaks about how Judaism is no longer anymore. They, they make these specific claims and attack specific groups as at the same time they give a very general idea of what Christianity is. That salvation is by faith through grace. It's not by any works, whether it's through the Gnostics or the Judaizers or the Old Testament Jews or Judaism. They're very specific in addressing those groups, but there's an overarching thing that says that Jesus Christ is Lord. The Quran doesn't function those terms. It'll always say that oh, the Allah is the only way and there's only one God, but it doesn't address Christianity specifically. It doesn't try to address the Trinity uh, in particular. So uh, all that to say that when you see things like the Jesus of, in the Quran or Abraham in the Quran, I have no problem saying that that is not the real Jesus. As this sounds blasphemous because we, you know, obviously we have a high reverence for Christ, but the Jesus of the Quran is not the Jesus of reality. Uh, the Abraham, the Adam, the Noah, all the characters that are similar in, that we see the similarities, they're not like, they're not like extra literature that's supposed to help us know those real guys. Rather, this is a parody of the scriptures. The Quran, in a lot of ways, is a parody of the holy scriptures. The Quran, uh, the Jesus in the Quran is only known from oral tradition. And again, Islam tries to argue against Christianity, but they don't have a full knowledge of Christianity. But again, it makes sense why Muhammad would not know, but it doesn't make any sense at all why Allah doesn't know. So the Quran, again, comes almost 500 years after Christianity, and even the Quran, the way it was assembled, it was not immediate. It was kind of like how the New Testament was. It was was in, in phases, and, but even then, there should be some sort of clear understanding of biblical doctrines if you want to refute Christianity. And in some ways, the Quran is supposed to counter Christianity, but it doesn't, it's not really countering the true biblical Christianity. It's, just, it's, it's trying to attack something that's not really there. Um, and the critics of the Bible, again, their, their, critic, their criticism of the Bible is more speculative as opposed to a, a, um, a true kind of discipline in studying it and then trying to make an argument against it. So again, scripture, when Paul talks about how he understands everything that the Pharisees believe and taught, and he could make a, a, a rebuttal against them, that's because he knows Judaism. I think that's why God uh, sovereignly chose Paul for that reason, is because he knew, he knew that the Jews and the early church needed to bridge, mentally bridge the gap between Old Testament and Christ. And I think Paul does that in the New Testament. All the New Testament writers does that, when they, especially when they tie Old and New together. They're showing you from the scriptures why Jesus is the Lord. But the Quran claims that their book is right, but their connections to, it, to Christianity is off. That's why things like the Trinity makes no sense to them. A lot of what they believe of Christianity is actually a misunderstanding because they don't have the accurate representation of the Bible. And again, the Quran attempts to correct or clarify things that are in scripture, um, like, for example, that Jesus in the Quran was not crucified. He was, and in their mind, in the, in the Muslim worldview, they believe that someone as good as Jesus should not be persecuted or go through such humiliation. Because in their mind, they don't understand things like the incarnation. Like the doctrine of the incarnation that is 
easy for us to understand in the scripture is foreign to, to Muslims. Uh, another uh, doctrine, and uh, I was actually surprised as I was like, kind of studying through these, these things, but there was, a, there was a Christian author named Michael Reeves, and he wanted to debate and write a book against the top Muslim scholar. And he's like, okay, let's do this. Like, let's just compare the two worldviews. We'll write a book together. And, you know, it's supposed to be like a very cordial and, you know, friendly debate. And they want to work on this project together. But eventually they got scrapped. Because Michael Reeves said that as he was talking to him, they wanted to make parallels. Like, okay, what do you need to do? What's prayer like for both? What's, uh, what's worship like for th- both? But then one thing that they could not find the, the balance or the parallel to was the word salvation. Because apparently in the Muslim worldview, there is no exact concept of salvation. The closest word that they can think of that's salvation, that's close to our understanding of salvation, is the word for success. Because in the Muslim worldview, you have to work your way into heaven. You have to do all of these different things. You have to pray seven times a day. You have to, for, you have to, get a, you have to stay away from certain types of foods. You have to do all of these different things. And then at the end, Allah will weigh, Muhammad really, will, will weigh the scales and see if you are worthy to get into paradise. That's why it's called success as opposed to salvation. And so, and so you know, incarnation, salvation, these things are foreign to them, and, and likewise, so is the Trinity. The Trinity is completely, uh, it's just not even in their, in their mind because it's not something that they're familiar with. So when you're talking to someone, a Muslim person, about the Trinity, they're going to have this false representation in their minds because of you know, Roman Catholicism or even groups like Jehovah Witnesses or... Um, or Mormonism, uh, they don't really understand. Neither do those other groups. So you as a Christian, if you want to evangelize them, you have to take them to the scriptures and be humble about it. Uh, Be willing to even hear their arguments as you talk to them because, again, they don't have a category for some of these things. Um, But you need to be willing to lovingly point them from the word and explain to them uh, in the context of scripture why we believe in the Trinity as opposed to saying this is just some sort of tradition or that, yeah, the word Trinity is not in the Bible and then you leave that at that. Uh, Yes, the word is not in the Bible, but neither is monotheism in both the Quran and the Bible. So, you know, these are just terms that we use to try to understand bigger concepts. Again, when you're sharing the gospel with, or you're trying to evangelize or defend the faith against a Muslim person, understand that they just don't have these type of categories. So be very patient. Um, I, I think in 1 Corinthians tells us that, um, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, uh, Verse 12, now we receive not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the spirit, combining spiritual thought with spiritual words. But a natural man does not accept the things of the spirit of God, for they are foolishness to them, and he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually appraised. Understand that before we were saved, before we were able to, before the Holy Spirit illuminated our hearts and minds to understand doctrines, we're no different from the Muslim or the Mormons or the Jehovah Witnesses. So be patient in the way that you share the gospel with them or even defend the Trinity. Um, you don't need to be afraid if they ask you certain questions. Just, just try to hear them out. Understand that whatever they're saying, it's a wrong understanding of the Trinity and you're just trying to use the Bible to correct them. Um, yeah, the Trinity... The, uh, incarnation, uh, salvation, and even the concept of love is foreign to the Muslim. Um, this even, uh, you know, this idea of God entering into the world and because out of a love for people, it's strange. Uh, I think I shared this once when I was preaching about how when I was sharing the gospel with 
a Muslim person, uh, one of the things that Muslims are required to do is they're supposed to memorize every single attribute about Allah. And one of the things that is not in the 95 is love. And, and the closest thing to love is that it's something you have to earn. You have to work for that love. It's not like a grace type of love that our God has towards us. So when you speak about love to them, even that, something that's so common to us, is completely foreign to them. The Quran seems uh, to know nothing about the New or the Old Testament, again, which is strange because, again, the Quran is, is trying to debunk the Bible, but they don't have an accurate Bible to defend against. Uh, some of the groups that they're defending against are more like a Gnostic type of Christianity. It's not the true biblical Christianity. And Muslim claims that the, the Torah was given to Moses, but even the gospel, they'll say that both of these, uh, you, could list, you, could, you could study those things, the, the gospel and the Torah, because the Quran makes references to both. Uh, but they'll say that if there's any verses that contradict the Quran, then the Quran is actually the one that's right, and then those are those passages that are just corrupted. Which again, it shows you how incompetent Allah is. It also shows you, even the God of the Mormons, how incompetent their God is. If they can't, if in their mind they think, well, your words, the scripture is corrupted by man, then what assurance do they have that the Quran won't be corrupted by man again? There's this, uh, there's this disconnect in the mind. Like, well, if, the, if, if man can corrupt God's word, then how do they know that their word will not be corrupted? Which I think we see that now if you kind of study that area of Islam. Okay, Mormons have the same issue. They believe that the Bible is corrupted and needs correction. But if, they, if that's true, then how would they know that their book it's not just going to be eventually be corrupted and needs correction again. Uh, the Muslim, again, tries to claim authority over the scripture, even though they don't represent Christianity accurately. They can't, you, and, and in the same way, when you're trying to debate against a Muslim, understand that you're not, you're not going to, it's not like the other two, like we're Jehovah Witnesses and Mormons. You could kind of use the Bible to go against they even use their Bibles against them. Uh, but for the Quran, there's no way to use it. You can't use the Trinity from the Quran because that doesn't exist. There's maybe some, some apologists that try to make references to it that say, like, oh, these can you know, be interpreted as the Trinity, but no, no Muslim theologian will say that's the case. It's just probably like some secular person interpreting it. But the Quran doesn't speak of the Trinity because it's not in their thoughts. Again, I think the big principle here is that when you try to explain the Trinity, if you have opportunity, use the scriptures. Use, them, use just a few of the verses that I have pointed out in that first session and try to explain it uh, to them through God's word. And again, they have a high view of the gospel and the Torah. And I don't know if you remember a few weeks ago when I, or months ago when I said we're going to go through the book of Mark because the book of Mark is the most gospel of the gospel. It's, it's the one that most even, it's the most it's one that you can use to evangelize to someone. Um, it doesn't, uh, it's not too lofty in the beginning like John 1, although I do believe John is a good gospel. But Mark is just, it humanizes Jesus but while at the same time show you his divinity. Um, so, you know, when you're studying scripture, you want to explain that. You know, go through your, the Mark series if you like or take more notes, understand, so that when one day if you get a chance to have a conversation with a Muslim, you can explain from the text uh, who this Jesus is. Um, and then here's, if you're wondering, where does it say in the Quran that it's okay to, that they have a high view of the gospel and the Torah? Because here, I'll read to you from the Quran. This, will be the problem, this is probably the only time where a pastor will read a, a, a verse from the Quran behind a Christian pulpit. But here's Surah, if you want to take note, Surah chapter 5, verse 44, it says, this, Lo, we did reveal, reveal the Torah, wherein it is guidance and a light. And Surah chapter 5, verse 
uh, chapter 5, verse 46, it says, And we cause Jesus, son of Mary, uh, to follow in their footstep, confirming that which was revealed before him and the Torah, and we bestowed on him the gospel, wherein guidance and a light, confirming that which was revealed before it on the Torah, guidance and admonishment unto those who ward off evil. So the Quran, again, speaks very highly of Jesus. It speaks very highly even of the Gospels and the Torah, not the other books, uh, but for sure, at least they, they seem to have a high view of those things. Now, also, when you're talking to a, a Muslim, especially if they kind of grew up in it, uh, there is an idea in the Muslim mind that I think we can understand too, and we call it in our Christian understanding the unforgivable sin. And they have something like that called the shirk, which is essentially, yeah, this, this idea that there's an unforgivable sin. And that is that anyone who chooses to leave uh, the Muslim faith, uh, they're going to essentially be, they're just an apostate, and they're going to be, they're going to you know, burn in hell forever. So when we're sharing the gospel with them, we're really calling them out of, in their minds, in their conscience, it's like we're telling them to commit the unforgivable sin. Uh, they see all Christians doing the same thing. They, a shirk is, is no, it's unforgivable because like, it's idolatry, basically. Um, and they see every other religious group committing this type of sin. And if you're calling them to be a Christian, you're essentially telling them to commit the unforgivable sin. Now, again, that's where you need to be patient and, and, and be gracious because they... That's just all that they know, and you're telling them to leave that, and that includes things like leaving their family and the community that they grew up with. And yes, that is going to be, uh, a, you know, that's, that's, that's an expectation for all Christians, right? We're, we'll deny ourselves, pick up the cross, and follow Jesus. Uh, if we love anything more than Christ, we cannot be with, uh, with Jesus Christ. So when you're pleading with them, understand that it's not, so it's not like, okay, you need to be on my side because we're right. Just you, have, you want to be gracious and try to explain lovingly uh, and try to understand from their point of view what they're essentially giving up. Because for them, they're really giving up everything to follow Christ. For us, it may not be that way. We could be Christians, and for the majority of us, we never really experience what it's like to be kicked out of family for our faith. But for the Muslim, especially those in that growing up in that community, it is a real deal. They'll be excommunicated, and they'll never, they'll basically be treated as dead in their world and to their family. So that's the first group, the Muslims. They are the group that denies everything. Um, and then, but on a plus, on a, I don't know if this is a positive, but relatively speaking, and when you compare Islam to Mormonism, we actually have, are more in line with Islam because we at least are monotheistic. The next group, the Mormons, they believe in everything. This is the group that accepts all things. The second group, Mormonism, or the Latter-day Saints. They actually don't like to be called Mormons anymore because they think that doesn't sound like a denomination of Christianity, but when you say, you know, the, latter, the, Jesus, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, it sounds like a denomination, but it's not. They're not a denomination, contrary to what they think. Uh, they are a cult, uh, even though they've been accepted in the, cult, in the modern culture as some sort of Christian sect. They are not. They are a cult. They are a false religious group. But with the Mormons, they would do the same thing. They believe that the Bible is corrupted and it's compromised and that there needs to be some sort of correction. Um, the same type of arguments. Uh, they uh, agree that uh, there are three gods. They do believe in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but how they define them are completely different. And that's what makes it really difficult when you're sharing the gospel with a Mormon because they will agree with you, but their definition of of who the Holy Spirit is and who the Son is and who the Father is radically different from ours. They, again, they even use the same terminologies, 
because they will use the term Godhead. And we would use the term Godhead, but when we use Godhead, it doesn't mean what they mean by Godhead. Because when we mean Godhead, we mean the triune God. Uh, one God uh, in essence and three in persons. They think, oh, it's a plurality of gods. Like more, uh, the Holy Spirit is there, and then there's uh, Jesus, and then there's God. They're all just kind of on the same team together. They would use biblical terms. Even things like faith and grace, they'll use it. Like, yeah, we're totally for it. And they, in their minds, think that they are a denomination, which is why they're not as hostile towards us as we, are, as we might be towards them. Uh, when I was in elementary school, I grew, I grew up was it ele- yeah, it was elementary school. I grew up in a Christian school, and um, across the street from where I used to go to school, there was a Safeway. And one night, my family and I went to Safeway, grabbed some groceries, and there was this very fine-dressed gentleman, and I spoke to my mom in Cantonese. He's a white dude. I was like, whoa, this guy knows Cantonese. And, I was like, and my mom was impressed, like, oh, you're talking about Jesus with me. You should talk to my kids. My kids go to church. Uh, they, they love talking about Jesus. Talk to them. And, you know, we're like, we introduced ourselves, and uh, my brother and I were like, oh, yeah, you believe in Jesus too? We're like, yeah, yeah we, I totally believe in Jesus. And like, where do you guys go? I was like, oh, we go to uh, CCS. And they're like, oh, that place, you know, we've been wanting to visit, but they don't allow us to go in. And then, there, and then I felt like offended, like, oh, these, these teachers, these are so judgmental. Why would they not let them in? And I was, like, furious at the, at the administration, thinking, like, these guys are so unloving. And then I found out that they were Mormons. And then the, the reason why they didn't let them in is because, like, oh, these guys are a cult. It's like, oh, that makes sense. They had the little tag and bicycles and everything. Uh, these guys are committed, and I was infuriated. I was like, I was like, I'm just, like, I got to find that guy in safe. I went back to safe, like, where's that Mormon? Where's that can't see this guy? I got to, like, get him. Um, he was gone on his bike somewhere, but... Yeah, I never saw him again. But it was fascinating. That was like the first encounter I had with a Mormon. Because, they, again, they used all these similar terms that we would use. Those things, they'll use things like, oh, God loves you, and Jesus Christ died for your sins. They'll believe, generally speaking, they'll, they'll say things that seem very similar to us. And again, Mormons see the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit as three gods who are unified in purpose. In fact, you know the song that we sing here, the holy, holy, holy? You know, the, uh, we say the, the part of the song, the God in three-person uh, blessed trinity. They actually took that song and edited it to make it into the Mormon version. It was like, uh, Father, Son, Holy, blessed unity. And they try to do that to show, you know, the, again, they try to make it seem like as though they are one of us, even though they're like kind of botching and changing our hymns for their own purposes. And the reason, one of the reasons why they believe that uh, Mormonism or that there is a plurality of gods uh, in the Godhead is because they'll say things like, well, in the Old Testament, if you look, the word Elohim is plural, and then, uh, and then there's also Yahweh. So there's two different gods here, uh, not realizing that there are times in Scripture where Elohim and Yahweh are point, put next to each other. If you look at your own Bibles, here's kind of like a, maybe a point of reference. I mean, you know in the Old Testament, say like Yahweh, you know, it's in the Old Testament, like all caps, L-O-R-D. And then Lord, that's the Elohim word. So something like Lord Yahweh or Lord God uh, or, or, yeah, uh, Lord God. Uh, so it's like, are they both talking simultaneously? How does this work? And they, you know, they obviously don't really understand the original language or how it works. Um, but like, for example, uh, I'm trying to find like some uh, God Yahweh. So like, if you see things like, 
then Moses, okay, uh, uh, Exodus 32 about the golden calf. Exodus 32, I just flipped randomly. This just happened to be here. This shows how common this is. Then Moses entreated the, the Lord, the Lord is all captured. It's basically Yahweh, his God, Elohim. And it said, oh, Yahweh, why does your anger burn against your people whom you have brought out from the land of Egypt with great power and with, with a mighty hand? So it's like Moses is speaking to God as one, not as like plural, or he's not speaking to two people here. Um, that's what the uh, Mormons claim. They claim to see that word Elohim, which is, it can be used in the con- depending on the context to mean the plurality of gods or false gods. Uh, but depending on the context, it can, it, it usually, when it's, especially when it's talking about Yahweh, it's speaking of Yahweh himself, that Yahweh is God. It's not there's a plurality of different gods and Yahweh is one of them. Uh, rather, he is the only true God. Now, they claim that God is a God that you can actually see, like you can physically, that God physically manifested himself. Um, they'll, still, they'll go to passages like in the garden, like see, Adam walked with God. Uh, so therefore, people, are, one of their views that you become a man, you, tr- you kind of transcend, you become a deity yourself, and that essentially Yahweh himself used to be a man that became a God. And now he owns his own planet, which is this one here. And then where we will be, if we believe, is that we'll eventually transcend and be enlightened to become a God, and we own our own planet. That's what the Mormon theology is. And if you wonder where did that original God come from, where did the God of this world come from, it's from this place called Kolob. But he, they believe that uh, God was, has a, can physically manifest himself. And they'll use verse like this. If you have uh, Exodus 33, verse 11, then the Lord used to, then Yahweh used to speak to Moses face to face, just as man speaks to his friend. When Moses returned to the camp, his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. See, if you, so if they, if you were, if a, if you, if you're defending an evangelizing Mormon, they bring a verse like this to you. You might think, oh yeah, how that that does seem like God has some physical form uh, that that they that he's talking about face to face. But, you know, and again, if you just go up in context, two verses earlier, it said Moses, when, whenever Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and Yahweh would speak with Moses. So he didn't actually see God directly, but there was this pillar of cloud that, that shrouds around Yahweh because anyone that looks at Yahweh will die. And that's what God has said, like, no one can see my face and live. But yet, you know, Mormons will kind of uh, pretend that that's not there. Another reference, Pastor Henry, I think he might have preached through this already, but Numbers, oh, he did. Uh, Numbers chapter 12, verse uh, 6 to 8, he said he, uh, what was it, 12? Yeah, 12, verse 6 to 8. Uh, he said, hear now my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, Yahweh, shall make myself known to him in a vision. I shall uh, speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my household. With him I speak mouth to mouth, even openly and not in the dark, saying, and he beholds the form of Yahweh. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant, against Moses? So I think what the Mormons, they don't understand is that uh, when God speaks, sometimes it is in dreams. And then Moses is distinct and unique. But even with Moses, there is a distance between them. There is something that keeps uh, Moses from actually seeing the physical uh, being of God. Again, Mormons try to write this to counter the Bible. And the Mormon God actually is, is not, it's, I guess it's somewhat eternal, but not really because there's a, there's a beginning 
and then they kind of they, they come into earth and they transcend into God Himself. You know that I forgot that movie it was called Soul in that Pixar. It was a Pixar or Disney film. Soul. Have you guys seen that movie? My wife and I saw. It. And if you see that movie, it's like I, I was like I, when I was watching it, it was totally Mormon propaganda. But I didn't I didn't share that with Kelly. It's kind of funny movie. But in the beginning, there you see these little ghosts. They're all like in this heavenly state, and then they jump into the planets, and then they inhabit someone, a baby, and then they, you know, they become a person. That's essentially what Mormonism is. Like, before you enter into the world, you were, we were all a bunch of little spirit babies floating, and then eventually we go into the world, and then we inhabit a body, and eventually we will ascend to this, uh, our, own, our own deity and become gods of our own. That's why even polygamy is such a big deal for them. And this is not things that you want to say to them. I'm just trying to assure you that the, how absurd the Mormon teaching is. The first thing you should not say to Mormons is like, oh, so what's the whole polygamy deal? They're going to instantly walk away. But again, I'm just telling you what they believe. Um, they believe that with polygamy, you know, you have all this family, so you, your whole family gets to go to this planet together, um, which sounds, again, I think all theology is a reflection of the author, and I think Joseph Smith is a perv, because he's a polygamist, and he was having affairs, and he tried to justify by making a doctrine that justifies his own sin. Mormons will get really upset if you say that, if you say that to them. I said that to them to their face before. They got on their bikes instantly and biked away. <laughs> Mormons, again, also, they're people that believe that you eventually become a deity. So things like the Trinity, for them, it's just like, they, they agree with you that there's these three councils of people that are important in this, on this planet. But you will eventually become like them, too. Uh, so they won't, they won't say Trinity in the way we would. Again, they'll use the word Godhead uh, and Remember that the Bible only speaks of God as one, right? Deuteronomy chapter 6 or Isaiah 44. It's like there is only one God. But the Mormon view of God is this, is that there was Elohim, which is essentially Yahweh, or Elohim that is like a man that becomes Yahweh, and he created Michael, the archangel, and then Michael's archangel becomes Adam, and then Adam becomes Jesus. And this is, uh, this is the kind of this, this thing where like there's a, each of them, Michael, Adam, and Jesus, will eventually become deity and then have their own planets. So Jesus is supposed to be the one that owns this planet. And they eventually, or Yahweh, depending on how you, who you ask. And there are things that they just, essentially, they don't believe uh, that there's a triune God. Their view is that each God, again, it's, it's almost, it's kind of like modalism. Like each God just puts on a hat whenever they want and they change depending on the time. But at the same time, there's also plurality of them. So it's not really a trinity. It's kind of like, whatever the number of like a thousand or whatever, how many deities they have. But if you're talking to a Mormon, this is where you want to know your Bible well. Unlike the Muslim group who's not going to, you have to use your Bible to, to talk to them, you, or they might use the Quran to, to, to go against you. You can't do, I mean, with the, with the Mormons and the Jehovah Witnesses, you can actually point to scriptures that they're holding to. Some Mormons might have uh, a New Testament, Old Testament, and the Book of Mormon kind of tied together. Sometimes they just have the Book of Mormon. Um, but if you have your Bible and they're open to it too and you're willing to go through it, understand that they are going to twist scriptures to make you think that, uh, that, that there is uh, a multitude of gods and that you, you will one day be one of them. One of the verses that they love is this passage here in Psalm 82. This is like their go-to passage. Again, here's just a tip that whenever you talk to a cult and they use the Bible, always read like five verses before and five verses after to understand the context. Uh, because if they just take verses out of context, you can make up any theology. Uh, you, can, you can put in anything. You could twist scripture uh, out of it. I mean, the word Twitter is in the New Testament, is in the NASB. You can look, look that up later, and you could take that out of context. 
But the verses that they love to use to say, see, we're going to be like gods. In Psalm 82, verse 6, they said, I said, you are gods, and all of you are sons of the Most High. They said, see, the Old Testament speaks of our doctrine. Joseph Smith totally gets it right. But if you read the entire context here is that God takes a stand in his own congregation. He judges in the midst of rulers. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Selah. Vindicate the weak and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and destitute. Rescue the weak and needed. Deliver them out of the hand of the wicked. They do not know uh, nor do they understand. They walk about in darkness. All the foundation worlds are shaken. I said, you are gods, and all of you are sons of the Most High. Nevertheless, you will die like men and fall like any one of the princes. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for it is you who possess all the nations. So this is actually a context in which they were calling themselves, and God's really sarcastic, saying that you call yourself deities, and he's going to just judge all of them. And he, again, they're twisting and using words out of context. But if they take one verse out and just use that one verse, like, oh, see, it said, you are all gods. And then you might be tricked into believing that, that their doctrine is actually true. Again, use the Bible and use it in context. If you're talking to Mormon, use the Bible and use it in context. And this is a similar principle that you will need when, you're t- when, we're t- when we get to the Jehovah Witness part. Because they also take verses out of context and even bend scripture to make it their view. Uh, I think second is define your terms. Like I mentioned, the Godhead, right? We, in our minds, have what our understanding of what Godhead is is not the same as theirs. So if you're talking with them, they're trying to find some commonality with you. You just have to be very specific. Like, what do you mean by faith? It's like, oh, but you have to, you have to do this. You have to um, get baptized in these ways. And they're going to list all of these things, and they say all of these things are all uh, faith because they're all part of that. You have to do all of these in order to achieve uh, salvation, they also believe in almost like a purgatory type thing where us as Christians, we're, gonna, we're, gonna, we're, we're in like a lower, like a, I don't know, lower, higher, like less severe version of hell and we have to work our way out. Then we get to eventually inhabit our own planet. Uh, but you have to work your way out of it. Um, and that's why in the Mormon church, there's this thing where they get a, a young boy and they'll keep baptizing the dead so that, so that other people can get out of this purgatory. Anyways, tangents. But just understand, define your terms. When you talk about hell, they're going to think of hell differently. When you talk about faith, they're going to talk about faith differently. When you talk about the Godhead, they're going to talk about the Godhead differently. So first, use the Bible. Use it in context, which is all in the first category. Second, you def- help define terms. Just be, usually the one who defines the terms win the argument. So if you uh, understand where they're coming from, use biblical terms. And they're going to, again, they're going to find their way to try and use similar terms to get us all tripped up. Because we might think, oh, yeah, we are the same. But it's not. Third, stay on one topic. Uh, I, I mean, even as I'm talking to you about this, I went to the, the whole polygamy thing. It's just, there's so much stuff that like, I study upon. I was like, man, you're weird. But just think of one thing. You don't have to argue and win. Like, oh, why do you guys wear all the sacred underwear for? You know, like, you know, that's not something that you need to say right away. Um, if you have eventually a discipleship-type relationship with them, then yeah, you can try to course-correct them from the God's word. But you don't need to um, be antagonistic towards them. Just stick on one topic. If it's salvation by faith, stick with that. If it's the deity of Christ, stick with that. If it's the fact that we only worship one God, stick with that. Because it's very easy for, those, uh, for cults to try to, um, especially when they're cornered, to change the topic. And you want to try to corner them with one topic and just stay there. And so, so that they have to make a verdict. Uh, one of the things I did when I was talking to Mormons, like, they said that... Um, 
Yeah, all three, the Book of Mormon, New Testament, Old Testament, uh, are all the same. They're all, they're, everything is completely in harmony. But it's like, then, but why do we need correction them? They're in complete harmony. And then I have them sing the old Christmas carol, like, Hark the herald angels sing. And it's like, Jesus born where? And it's like, Bethlehem. And it's like, yeah, the Old Testament talks about that, right? He's like, yeah, New Testament talks about that, yeah. And then I went all the way to the Book of Mormon, because I, I, at the time I memorized it, and I showed them the verse. I said, it said, Jesus born in Jerusalem. And then they were shocked. They're like, so where is it? Jerusalem, Bethlehem are two different places. Which one is it? And then they got on the bike and rode away. <laughs> That's a, it's an escape tactic. It's just like, I got to get out of here. But again, stick to one topic. And because that point of that was just like, how is this consistent? You know, you claim they're all consistent. And they didn't even, they didn't even know about it. They, they actually acknowledge that they have never read that verse before. Which again, interesting to me, because like you're devoting your life to all of this. And this is a very basic doctrine. This is like, you know, something you go through every Christmas. Um, but anyways, stick to one topic. And then the fourth point is to stick to one topic because it's important that all cults, wherever you talk to, they're going to try their best to try to spin it uh, or change the topic so that you will be distracted from the main thing. But again, just go back to the first message. All the verses that we talk about in the Trinity is to help you uh, understand who the God of the Bible is. It's not that there's a, multi, like a whole multitude of different gods out there, although the, they, claim, they claim that the Trinity is a man-made concept, and part of the reason why I think Christians, and especially immature Christians, willing to give that ground is because they don't know their Bible well enough. They don't know the doctrine, so then they just say, yeah, you're right, like, uh, it is man-made. It's, like, it's not man-made. It's God revealing himself through Scripture. Man helps find ways in which to kind of encapsulate the concept for us because we are finite creatures, but the Bible speaks about the, the Trinity and that God is a God of Trinity. And we could get into the, well, what does uh, you know, Joseph Smith teach? You can just read all of that. The, his doctrine has changed over the years and the stuff that he said they don't believe now. In fact, nowadays, if you try to talk to Mormon about their doctrine, they might not even know what they believe. So it's almost like you need to convert them to Mormonism before you convert them out into Christianity because they don't even know what they believe. Which, again, it should be humbling to us because do you know the doctrines that are in Scripture? Do you, do you truly know the things that you claim to believe? You know, when new members come to our church, I said, do you read the doctrine? The doctrine statement, they say yes, but although you affirm it, do you actually know it? I'm not saying you have to be like a theologian scholar to know every little thing like you have to go to seminary, but there should be this desire in your heart to know more about our God. Because the Mormons, they're, a lot of them, they are deceived. They're brought into the system, I think demonically, and they need truth. And if we're going to expect them to at least know their doctrine so that at least they can represent Mormonism, right, so we can at least talk to them about their, the falseness of their claims, we should at least know the truth of the scriptures. So Islam, the one that rejects all things, Mormonism, who accepts all things, and then now Jehovah is the one that accepts and takes away some things. They're like the the lukewarm one. They, they accept some things and deny some things. The Jehovah Witness, they are Unitarians. They're kind of like uh, the Muslim group where they just believe that there's only one God. So, you know, they, they kind of deny the fact that there is a trinity, obviously. Um, and they, deny, uh, they believe that the Bible, the New Testament and the Old Testament, is not only corrupted, but is mistranslated. Uh, they think that the the people, the, the, the scholars that we have are completely off in their understanding of the Old and New Testament, um, and therefore their translation is the best. Now, a little history here to give you guys assurance. Again, their founder, 
uh, I think it's like T.D. Russell. I think his last name, his last name is Russell. I forgot the first, uh, R.T. Russell. Yeah, R.T. Russell. He, when he made Jehovah, when he made uh, the Jehovah Witness movement or the, the Watchtower Society, he claimed to be a Greek scholar. Like, I understand Greek. And then he was put in trial because like, he, he's basically like scamming people for money. And then he's put in trial and they said, you claim to be a Greek scholar. And then they basically, it's like, okay, yeah, I am. And then he, they basically gave him like passages on the New Testament, like Greek verses. It's like, translate this. He didn't know how to do it. It's like, this is a guy that claims that the, the entire New England, you know, our English version is completely mistranslated. But he himself, who claims to be a master of Greek, could not translate basic uh, Greek. Now, understand there are, there are times, I think some of us here have studied Greek, and if you don't know Greek, don't do it. Don't, don't say, oh, the Greek says it, because some of them are smart enough to say, prove it. Just like how, like, you know, the, what happened to the, the, the founder, they might ask you, they might take you to your test, like, hey, do you really think that you can dis, disprove us by knowing some basic Greek? Now, for me, in my, I have, I've encountered Jehovah's Witnesses in different phase, times of my life, but I remember when I was in seminary, I just happened by God's providence to just learn basic Greek. It was like a week into Greek, and then they went to the Jehovah Witness passage, like how, how they got it wrong and stuff. So they showed us, you know, John 1. I was like, oh, cool. I could, I could rebuke a Jehovah Witness with the Greek. And I, you know, I wasn't like a scholar. It's just like I just learned something for a week. And they rang my door, and I was so happy. Like I grabbed my Greek New Testament. I actually I just grabbed it and chased after them. Like, hey, I want to talk to you about this. And, and then they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, we know Greek. And then it's like, okay, can, you read this? can we read this together? And, you know, neither one of us could read it. Uh, but he claimed that, like, to know a lot. And I was like, okay, I'm just, a, I'm just a new seminary student that, like, trying to understand Greek. But I try to explain to him the grammar and everything, because uh, I at least understood the concept. Uh, but he had no idea what he was saying. And he would say, we're, we're at least, we're humble enough to admit that we're wrong in our translations. Like, that's not really that assuring if I'm trying to join your cult. Like, you're claiming that your doctrine can be changed over time. There's no assurance there. And what makes it hard for people in the, in the Watchtower Society or the Jehovah Witness is that they're not allowed to read literature outside of their own, like, their own writings. Um, they, that's why they, they have a hard time when you're trying to explain to them things. Uh, they're not going to listen. Or even if you try to give them a gospel tract, they're not going to read it. They're gonna, it's like a one-way relationship. They'll give you all their literature, but it's hard for them to get to... You know, if you try to bring them like a, you know, like like one of those cult books, or try to read things to them, or explain even grammar stuff, they're not gonna, they're not gonna go for it. But what you can do is use the Bible. Uh, I found that to be incredibly helpful. In that exact same encounter, he happened to have a, he had his iPad, and then he's like, okay, um, he he pulled up the New World Translation, he read it to me, it's like, oh, that's interesting. And then I said, do you realize that you're the only people that translated this way? He's like, no, it's not, it's not true. And then. Again, it was his own demise because he, he had an interlinear thing. He had the New World Translation on one side, and he put all, pulled up the ESV, and he read it. It's like, and he's, it's like, because it, a New Living, New World Translation has a word like, in the beginning was a God, you know, instead of, you know, God. Um, and then every other translation, he went from ESV, and then he switched to the NASV, and he went to NIV. He went to all the other English translations, even the message, like the terrible translation, they get it right. And I asked him, like, why is it that... Every other English translation, even the message, who just did not use Greek to translate in his really devotional Bible, how come every single one of them translated this one particular way, but your group translated it this way? And then he just didn't want to answer. He's like, oh, well, and that's where he brought up the humble thing. We're, hum- we're willing, he thinks I was being prideful, but I'm not being prideful. I'm, I'm trying to be loving here. I'm trying to show you that all of these other translations, even the terrible ones, interpreted it one way, but how is it that you guys claim to have authority over the Greek language translated 
differently than he went to another neighborhood house. Actually, I was chasing after them. They just told me not to, like, you know, we don't want to talk anymore. I was like, okay, fine. But again, these guys, you have to admit, you have to give them credit, because these Jehovah's, they're hardcore evangelists. They, I mean, in West Portal, you can see them just standing there with their little pan flips. Uh, they are willing, and on average, they spend five hours every single week studying on how to evangelize the people. Like, it's, it was very convicting to kind of see that stat because I don't know how many of us spend five hours thinking about evangelism, five hours thinking about how we can even you know, talk to people that are of the different faith or non-Christians altogether. They do this because their salvation depends on it. They believe that you need to work your way into heaven. Now, now I'm going to try to bring it back to the Trinity. What, what is their view of the Trinity? Well, they, they don't believe that they don't believe in the Trinity, but they believe that God made Michael, and he, Michael was the first and the only direct creation. Because in the, in the Jehovah Witness view, there's no such thing as physical body and spirit at being completely different things. They're one thing. So when you die, you either, you just cease to exist. There's no like spirit that ascends anywhere. You just, you just stop. There's no soul sleep. It's just, it's, you're, you're done. So you know, all matter only comes, uh, Michael, the archangel, is the only one that uh, God created, and, and through Michael, Michael's supposed to make all these other things. He's essentially the worker. This Michael eventually becomes Jesus at some point. It's, it's un, even if you study Jehovah's Witness theology, it doesn't make sense how this works. Like, he's just kind of like, Michael ceased to exist, and then somehow Jesus appears in the womb. It just, it just happens that way. Um, again, man doesn't have a soul, so when they die... Uh, God was going to recreate every single, not every single one of those that are saved from, him, from memory. So it's kind of like, well, is it really me then? Is it, is it, am I being just re, am I just being cloned? If I die and I'm a Jehovah Witness, am I just being cloned somewhere else? Is that really me? Because the Bible tells us that we are going to be resurrected. You know, we, uh, if you die, you go straight into paradise with the Lord, and then in your body, you get a bodily resurrection where your soul is returned back to your body, and you get a new, new body. But to the Jehovah Witnesses, again, they don't have these categories of resurrection. It's just, you just, you get remade from the memory of God. And uh, Jesus is this exalted creature. They'll even, again, use the same terminology as we would. They'll say things like, uh, yeah, he's the firstborn. Again, their understanding of the firstborn and our understanding of the firstborn is different. Uh, in Colossians, where it says that, in Colossians 2 9, where it said that, uh, Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. They view that as like, see, he's the first one that was made. Uh, but again, if you understand those biblical terms, that's not, it's not talking about like chronological, but rather in terms of rank, like value. In, in the Jewish mind, firstborn means like the one that receives the inheritance. So that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. He's the one that was supposed to receive all of creation, not that he was the first created being, which is what the Jehovah Witnesses believe. Now, when you're talking to Jehovah Witnesses, I would recommend that you memorize scripture because if you memorize enough scripture or know enough scripture that when they try to use a verse against you, it, would, it, may, it should sound different because your translation, their translation should be different. But if, you're, if they throw a verse at you and you're not familiar with that text, you might actually believe that this is actually what the, what the verse actually says. But if you memorize scripture and you know, Psalm 19, you, you, you cherish, you treasure God's word in your heart so that you, don't, you, you may not sin against the Lord, I think that's, that's what you need. You need to memorize scripture so that if you try, if they try to throw a verse at you, that you're, you'll be ready. Like, this sounds off. Like, this is not right. This is biblically not true because you know in your heart what God's word has to say. Now, you may not, and again, if you, 
chances are, um, again, they spend five hours prepping to attack you. So if you memorize scripture, that's like your counterattack. Um, they, they're, they're ready. They, they're, they, they've spent time. Even like things like John 1.1, they've memorized the answer and why, how, how to explain it. Uh, but unless you know how to, unless you understand how John 1, 1 in the context of the verse and everything that goes along with it, it might blow you away because they know their stuff. Even though it's just a rote memory, they may not understand it, but they've been trained again five hours every week to, to go against you. So just know that all of them are prepared. Uh, and the question I have for all of us, are we prepared? And one way you could prepare yourself is to memorize scripture. Cherish it in your hearts. Um, don't rely on your technology. I know that, that and said, that's actually why that Jehovah Witness guy that I spoke to ended up failing for him because he started using technology. But if he was, and I were just using the scriptures, it would be a different conversation. But you want to be able to know God's word in your own hearts, and you want to, um, uh, you want to be able to uh, speak truth and even to, to detect error because your lack of clarity on things like the Trinity is how they're going to exploit you. They're going to throw all of these things at you. And again, they're, they're ready. They know those verses that you know. But do you know those verses about the Trinity that's defended or even verses that they try to use against the Trinity? This is something that all of us are, are expected to do as believers, to contend for the faith. When you go to Sunday school, when you go on Sunday, you're, you're learning, you're acquiring knowledge about God so that you can actually accurately represent him. Uh, and yeah, first, and when talking before even talking to Jehovah Witness, memorize scripture. And second, this is the same thing what I said with, with the Mormons, and that is use biblical terms. I, I mentioned the firstborn thing. Their understanding of firstborn is different. Even th- when they say image of God is different. I remember spot, uh, talking to them. So let's see, I, I was trying to explain to them the deity of Christ. Like, Jesus Christ is made in the image of God. Uh, or, or he is the, the perfect image of God. Not made in the image, but he's the perfect image of God. He's like, yeah, image. Like, like you know, my father looks like me. I'm, I'm bearing his image. And so they think of like a created kind of thing. It's like, no, that's not what it means. It means that he re- accurately represented in every single way. And when you try to explain terms and define terms, you'll find that it's actually radically different. Again, young, immature Christians, they tend to be tricked into thinking that either all religions are the same or um, that, we, uh, that they have an accurate representation of what the scripture has and they're drawn to that. If there's ton, there are a lot of times when, I've, when, I've, when I ask them, how did you come to Jehovah Witness or Mother God or Mormonism or whatever, these type of other Christian groups, they will say that. Oh, I actually grew up in the church. I grew up in the Protestant church. But then they had all these, and they throw all these verses back at you. Say, see, here are all the verses that converted me. And if you just kind of even talk about one verse with them, you realize that it's just a shallow understanding of that verse. And it's that shallow understanding that, 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 that actually catches shallow Christians. Again, when we think about the Trinity, the Trinity and all three of them, they are going to find verses and ways to go counter against you. But if you know God's word, especially the Trinity, you will be able to actively represent God with all of these people. Uh, again, most Christians won't do anything for the truth. I mean, if you think about the Jehovah Witnesses, they're like out there evangelizing almost every single day. They're willing to not work to do the Sabbath in their minds, the Sabbath, so they spend a day evangelizing. They're willing to go door to door. They're willing to memorize scripture or mem- and prepare five hours out of the week just so they can convert people. Or the or the the Mormons that you know they have to do all of these different things, like spend two years being a missionary, traveling somewhere to try to win people to Mormonism, or the Muslims that have to pray seven times a day and um, you know pray for a certain direction, travel to Mecca, uh, forsake certain 
foods. They're willing, even some are willing to die for, for Allah. They're willing to do so much for next to nothing. But we as Christians, we have the truth. And we should be willing to defend and to share the gospel with those that do not know Christ. Again, each group that you encounter will, you know, they're, they're going to have to varying degrees some sort of concept about training or misconception about training that you need to be able to defend. Uh, some will be able to ask you hard questions, um, and these hard questions, uh, they do have an answer. And I'm, and I'm trying to assure you that all of these different worldviews, there are major inconsistencies in their thinking. And, and, um, and again, it's because they lack, they're blinded by this, you know, the, the demons and Satan and their own sin. But I assure you that if you know God's word, you, you will faithfully and actively represent him because truth will always win. And if we believe that our God is the one true God, then all we have to do is just gently and lovingly defend the faith. The Trinity is about knowing God, and if you know him, if you truly love him, then you'll live for him, which is our last message, last week's message. And if you're willing to live for him, then defending and proclaiming this triune God is something that we need to do as well. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we're humbled to know that there are indeed cults out there and many people who are lost, many people who do not know you, and it's not because we are smarter than they are or that we are uniquely gifted to understand your word, but it is really all your grace. And when we think about the, the Muslim friends and the, the Mormon neighbors and the Jehovah Witness people that are just around us, we can't help but break knowing that they are indeed lost without you. May we be faithful in, in just hopefully even developing a relationship with them to share the gospel with them. And Lord, give us boldness, uh, give us assurance from your word that you are a triune God and that you are indeed the God that we worship, the one true God, and all these other uh, false misrepresentations of you, that their God is going to perish away with them as well. And may we have a compassion for them. May we have a loving spirit towards them. That they are not the enemy. They are just um, lost. Um, they are people that are in the mission field. And, and may we just be faithful in ministering to them. If we have any um, you know, neighbors or coworkers that do believe in these systems, uh, may we be bold and not fearful in talking with them and hopefully uh, win them and snatching them out of the fire, Lord. Lord, thank you for this little series. And Lord, there is so much uh, to be said about this topic and this, and really about you, Lord, that we, we won't be able to cover in a night. But Lord, may you cause in our hearts a deeper desire to show us all how little we know about you so that we can strive to know more about you, so that we can know you and to live faithfully and to actively represent you to a dying and lost world. We thank you in your son's precious name. Amen.